I'm here today with Eric Minton, the author of a new book titled, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life, from Broadleaf Books. Eric is a writer, ordained Baptist minister, and psychotherapist specializing in marriage and family therapy. He has a family therapy practice in Knoxville, Tennessee, and provides coaching, consultation for pastors, nonprofit leaders, business people, and institutions, helping them foster better ways of living, working, and serving together. Eric's work has appeared in Sojourners, G's Magazine, Baptist News Global, and Red Letter Questions. You can learn more at ericminton.me. That's E-R-I-C-M-I-N-T-O-N dot M-E. And this is the cover of his book. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, again, you know, it's, uh, it's not you, it's everything. So, Eric, um, thank you so much, and congratulations on uh, your new book. Thanks, Brian. I'm uh, happy that it's in the world and it actually exists. It's been a long time. <laughs> well, it's a major thing to put together a new book. I, I know from, you know, all the authors that I deal with. So uh, thanks for persevering. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And doing it during the end of the world was an especially <laughs> pertinent time to write a book about how everything is weighing on us. Really? So. <laughs> Very timely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Whether you thought that was the case when you started or not, it really is. <laughs> You know, I had some ideas, and then there are only so many times that you can interrupt your writing while your son bothers you because he can't go anywhere, and you're in your tiny home together, and, you know, you can only cry in your shower and eat takeout so many times before you start really thinking, what am I doing here? (laughs) What is happening to me? So, yeah, writing it during the pandemic was especially strange and wonderful. So, yeah, I was a big fan. (laughs) Would, Would recommend it. So before we get into the book, could you tell folks a little bit more about your background than what I touched on? Yeah, sure. Uh, So for me, I I grew up in the southeast uh, in East Tennessee, and I grew up, and I talk about this a bit in the book, uh, but I grew up uh, conservative Southern Baptist, uh, white evangelical. I didn't, I wouldn't have known any of those words at the time. I just was Christian and a normal person, uh, according to me. So, um, you know, when I was doing that, I went to my local university, uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and uh, there I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of thought about, I was a psychology major then. Um, And so having interacted with several different professors, one of which was an American history professor uh, and an American studies professor, and they really exposed me to the ways of thinking about religious institutions as a sociological endeavor. And so there was uh, Nancy Ammerman's Bible Believers book and a couple of other things that really caused me to think, oh, I am a white evangelical. And, I, you know, it's, it's amazing to have this sort of uh, like self-awareness at that point of, oh, I'm, I'm part of this group of people. And then I started learning about those groups of people. And I thought, oh, my, uh, there are so many things I did not know about this. Um, and so then uh, my wife and I, we got married right after college. And we both went to a place called Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. And I loved going to Fuller. She went to their school of psychology and became a psychotherapist there. Uh, right out of, of college. And then um, I did a master's of divinity there and planned on being a pastor. And I did that working mostly with adolescents and college students back home in East Tennessee for about four years until I got super burned out. And I really had uh, a difficult time with that. And there were a lot of things weighing on me. And so about the time my son was born, he was a month old. I decided to uh, quit my job at the church. It was a great idea uh, financially and health insurance wise. Uh, and go back to school to also become a psychotherapist like my wife. And uh, I ended up having to leave my job at the church while doing that, um, again, p- for personal theological reasons, but also 
uh, just because I needed to to do uh, more of an internship and try to start working toward becoming an actual therapist. So I quit that job and started working at Trader Joe's, um, the grocery store. And so there, uh, that was uh, just a really interesting transition into real life uh, and not just getting paid to pray for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, So for me like that, that, and I talk about this kind of process in the book of recognizing like, Oh, what it's like to actually shift from this world in which you've been training your whole life to, be called into the the ministry and people will say that with all kinds of air quotes. Uh, and then moving into working at a grocery store where people, um, and this was long before the pandemic, but where people would treat you any number of ways and getting to learn about the st- people on staff at Trader Joe's who worked there and the like complexity of who they are as people. And just seeing that sort of drained out of all of us when we're mm-hmm. just ringing people up and bagging their groceries. Um, and so that part of the process was really instructive for me and, led me to ask more questions about, well, gosh, like, why is it that so many of us have these kind of societal lenses that dictate toward, like, who's worthy of listening to about complicated realities or existential things versus who isn't? Uh, And I would start having these conversations with other people on staff at Trader Joe's and thinking, man, these people all, like, several of them had master's degrees. So we were all part of the same team. And I'm thinking, what are we doing here? Like, what's going on in the world? Uh, and so then as, as I became a therapist and began working with a lot of teenagers, especially teenagers initially in my work in poverty or in distress with their families, I started finding out that they're asking me to diagnose these kids and families with depression and anxiety. But then what does it mean to have depression and anxiety when you don't actually have uh, livable income, when you don't actually have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, when you have a high level of gun violence in your community, when your community has been ravaged by an opioid epidemic and uh, like a school to prison pipeline. And then seeing all of that and kids are telling me, yeah, I'm depressed. And I started wondering, oh, well, like for all of us though, like look around the pandemic, all of these sorts of things are shaping the ways that we're thinking of ourselves. And our first move is to say, there's something wrong with me. Instead of saying like, oh, why is it normal to like post pictures of our son's birthday party on Instagram with like succulents at a background? And why is it normal to, you know, text while operating a two-ton vehicle in heavy traffic? And why is it normal to check email on the weekends and uh, disparage our political opponents on Facebook and, uh, you know, to see the destruction of democracy and then think to myself, I'm sad about all of this. There must be something wrong with my brain. Hmm. Uh, and so for me, uh, as a therapist, that's one of the most uh, I found in my work with people before I wrote the book, one of the most important things was to say to them when they would kind of level these sorts of things they visited Dr. Google and he had prescribed them and diagnosed them with, you know, <laughs> I have ADHD or I have, I'm bipolar. And uh, I would ask them, okay, well, talk to me about what it's like to work at your job or to raise your kids or to be in your family or to go to school. And they would talk about all of these things. And my favorite thing would just be able to say to them, yeah, hearing all of that, Uh, And then if you had told me at the end of this kind of long stream of things that are really hard for your life and said, gosh, I've never felt better. I actually feel great right now. I don't, you know, anything is possible. Uh, That's when I call mobile crisis and have them come pick you up in a van. (laughs) And so for us, uh, and people would say, well, I'm just, I'm supposed to feel better. And I said, well, have you looked around outside? I think, I think your body's trying to get your attention. Uh, And so, for me, that was one of the key motivating factors in writing this book is recognizing that when we are experiencing distress, and I had this experience myself, my first move is to internalize the sense of failure that accompanies that of not being awesome, like our uh, American folk religious religion has taught us to be. 
Hmm. Uh, and so then I kind of punish myself over and over and blame myself and then go see a therapist and ask that therapist to kind of fix this brain chemistry problem within me. And I started realizing, oh, well, maybe my body isn't wrong to be in distress because the world seems like a particularly inhumane and unlivable place. Hmm. So all of that to say, that's a little bit more about me. I sound like a real cheer up at a party. So, <laughs> Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I'm really glad that you've done this, right? I mean, you know, writing a book is a difficult task. It takes an awful lot of time uh, and effort and, um, <clears throat> you know, bearing your soul in a lot of ways, right, which you've done. So, uh, so thanks for, you know, making that contribution. And obviously, you and we are hopeful that it'll help more people. That's, you know, I think the number one motivation a lot of folks have. It seems like you do. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much the idea is that, you know, like if you, uh, turn on your phone right now and scroll Instagram. There are so many uh, members of the self-care industrial complex that uh, would like you to, again, uh, just brand better. Uh, or they'd like to have you kind of interrupt these faulty cognitions and start manifesting a preferred future. <laughs> and I, I think for me, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to offer people an alternative to that uh, was because I found that listening to our pain like to the, the like negative or depressing or anxious or really kind of crushing emotional experiences that we're having is one of the most freeing and liberating things because it doesn't need to be immediately transformed into something more productive or consumptive or awesome for other people. And that's what I was finding a lot of people who were particularly distressed in my office as a therapist were experiencing was this own kind of internal messaging uh, and it's what psychologist Brett Ford at the University of Toronto calls meta emotion. Hmm. And so it's these, these experiences where we are having our feelings about our feelings. Hmm. Like we're judging our own kind of interior emotional state. And as Americans, we're, we're judging that with a particularly negative lens, hmm. especially when we're feeling pain. Hmm. And so our view is to like when we're noticing that we're feeling down or we're feeling a bit anxious is to then look around outside of ourselves and see everyone on Instagram with like more succulents and uh, with nicer looking families and think to ourselves, oh my word, how is it that my life has gotten to this point and that I'm feeling this up, like upset or anxious or depressed about it? And then that kind of creates this snowball with people. And so then we get this tendency that we want to ignore or suppress that pain because we think it's going to hinder us from being more productive or consumptive or successful. And so I'm trying to offer an alternative solution to that to say like, hey, I think you've picked that up along the way from lots of different influences, some of which are our hyper uh, capitalist environment that's telling us always to kind of be branding or building or growing or hustling. And then there's also this kind of technological space that's turned us into content for other people. And so I, I would love it if people were able to kind of decrease their branding a little bit and slow down and listen to the very real pain that their bodies are trying to get their attention with because there are real reasons for us to feel this way. Hmm, hmm. So as I mentioned, you know, the title of the book is It's Not You, It's Everything. So can you expound just a minute about what you mean when you say everything? <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Um, you know, one of my friends, uh, he's, he's, he's deep into hip hop and I, I like hip hop and I'm not a, a massive fan. I don't have this catalog understanding of the, of the work, but he would say that in black and African-American spaces that oftentimes people would say, you know, everything is everything all of the time and that they would have this way. And again, I don't want to appropriate anything here and I'm probably going to speak, but he's simply saying that, you know, everything is kind of weighing on us 
And that when we talk about everything, we're talking about everything and what we've been through, what our ancestors have been through, what our people have been through. And it's kind of this existential overwhelming experience of just being a person in the world, being shaped by all of these forces that sometimes we have no control over. And so one of the things that I think has been most helpful and one, a theologian in particular who is meaningful to me is a man named Walter Wink. And so when he would write these series of books called The Powers That Be, he was trying to help us understand that there are these, uh, what he called invisible forces that kind of play a role in shaping the ways that humans interact. And he had this idea of what he called sinfulness as being these systemic kind of pressures on us hmm. that would shape our responses to things in ways that were really harmful. Hmm. And so he would use this example of really getting upset at a politician in particular for being corrupt or being in the pocket of big pharma or, you know, something like that, or, or big oil or uh, would, would fail his or her constituents or ha would have this kind of experience. And, and he would say it was misguided to get the answer as, well, let's remove that politician from office because that politician's corrupt and let's get somebody in there who isn't corrupt. And then uh, he would find, like, oh, the, the thing keeps happening to all of these people. Are all politicians just corrupt? Can we just find somebody that isn't a politician? Maybe that person won't be corrupt. Maybe they can drain the swamp. Perhaps you've heard of this, Brian. Uh, and so then we do that. And then the same thing keeps happening again. And so Wink's argument is that, oh, what's well, because the system has a center of gravity that kind of shapes what reality is possible within it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was trying to take uh, in, in large ways that kind of idea mm -hmm. and thinking mm -hmm. as a systems-based therapist by saying, you know, like context really determines the ways in which we think of things as being normal or sure. appropriate or healthy or, or sick, you know? And so for us, when we talk about everything, it's important to name what those realities are, to identify them. And so for me in the book, one of those things is like, oh, well, let's identify the way that for a lot of our kids, uh, because much of my work has been when adolescents and college students and families has been like, oh, well, the professionalization of childhood right now is out of control. And the ways that we have turned kids into what Malcolm Harris calls investments or human capital mm -hmm. that are expected to return um, or expected to produce a tidy return on our investment of energy, effort, finances, all of these things. And I hear it all the time with families that there's this bottleneck of opportunity because of growing population concerns and scarcity that we need our kids to be lean, mean production machines as quickly as possible. And so if you go to our, the, the hallowed ball fields of, uh, of the American heartland, uh, what you'll find are just parents screaming at kids for not hustling or spending weekend after weekend paying thousands of dollars for them to be involved in youth league soccer for them to not go pro when they turn 17. Uh, and so it's this idea of even from that point on, there's this undercurrent of expected productivity from our kids. Look at high stake testing, look at no child left behind, look at all of these influences that shape the ways in which kids are trained to sort of become immediately good at everything all of the time. And then if we extrapolate out from that, we think like, well, well, you know, like, where do we learn to, to do this with our kids? And, and where do we learn to film their every movement and turn them into content? It's like, oh, our, our phone's really effective at doing that. And so then we think about the ways that we even are shaped by technology now. Um, and that it's, it's shifted from the internet in the early days being a source of connectivity for real life. Like, so that real, like the internet supports real life to now an entire world where real life is lived for the purposes of the internet. Uh, to the point that I, I think I, I put this little tidbit in the book that there was some, I think it was for um, just general practitioners, like a, a, just a medical journal, but it was talking about the number of selfie deaths or selfie related deaths 
in the world on a given year. I think it's like around 200. Well, just 200 stepping backwards people. off a cliff. That one yeah, alone. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, 200 people like around that range, maybe 175, something like that, die every year taking a selfie. Mm-hmm. And so these these doctors, these medical doctors, these general practitioners were suggesting that maybe we need to create signage for people in real life that says, hey, don't take a selfie here. People have died. Uh, and so it really gives this ominous tone to do it for the gram. You know, Brian, when uh, we're thinking like, yeah, fall to your death. Uh, and so we're having to save people from Instagram at this point with just signage because otherwise they'll just walk off into the ether. Uh, and, you know, so we're, we're, we're thinking about that. And we're thinking about like, oh, for me, uh, white evangelical subcultures were really shaping. And we're seeing it now with the election of Donald Trump or the election of Trump's preferred candidates now, or even the ways that we've seen uh, Kristen Dumais' book uh, rise to stratospheric levels because she's naming, along with Francis Fitzgerald's book, The Evangelicals, came out a couple of years before that, that really did a good job of naming what was happening. And so I think for us, like that's the process is naming, not just uh, what we're feeling, Sure. But naming, what are the structural realities shaping that feeling for us? What are the things that make that reality possible to us? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think, you know, the way we're rearing kids, technology, uh, our religious infrastructure as de facto American folk religion, uh, white evangelical Christians. And then at the end of the day, the undercurrent of all of that is what I would argue is hypercapitalism, kind of this internalized insatiable need for productivity, reward, scarcity, fear, competition, all of that kind of driving the ways that we raise kids or we conceive of our faith or we spend time on the internet. And so for us, the, the goal is to try to name, Hey, like when you're feeling this way, there are very real reasons why that's happening. And gosh, it just makes a ton of sense for us to spend time with that so that we don't immediately think to ourselves, I should be doing better right now. I should be more productive right now. I don't know what's slowing me down. Well, I have some ideas. Um, so that, that's kind of when I'm saying everything, uh, I mean it, or at least I, I, I'm trying to mean it. So one of the things that uh, I really liked that you did in your book was the title of each chapter is a question. And they all start out with either why or what if. Um, can you say why you chose that approach? You know, uh, initially, I wanted it to be a, well, first of all, I had a good editor. And uh, my editor, Valerie, um, who I think is a genius, uh, she was helpful in saying, Eric, I think some of these initially, they were just going to be statements of um, like, here's, here's the deal. And then I, I wanted the titles to be somewhat playful at the same time, because I'm talking about kind of crushing things. Um, and so she was saying, like, well, what if we pose them as a question and that each chapter is responding to that question that you're asking? And so my hope was to kind of put that question in a voice of someone who's just looking out at the world around them and thinking, well, yeah, what the hell is happening? Like, why is it like this? Like what's going on with that? Because I feel like that's the first step to finding clarity on things, especially when I'm working with people in therapy is to start just asking questions about, Oh, well, that's interesting. What's going on with that? And we would say, even when we're working with people who have had severe traumatic experiences in their life, that if we can help them be more curious about the things that have happened to them, even when those things are really scary and painful, it decreases that acute stress response within them. Because if you're curious about things, they can't traumatically dictate to you this kind of hyper stress, like fight or flight, faint freeze sort of response that happens with people. So my goal was to say, if we can stay playfully curious about some of these shaping things, uh, to keep some things light in the midst of something heavy, then I think we can hang in there longer 
to find out what's at the kind of the undercurrent of all that, if that makes sense. Well, I think it provides some hope too. the tone of that to me does at least like using questions like that. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. You know, I'm hopeful about the hope that's inherent in that. Uh, when I, when I first kind of put together an early draft and we had some people read it, uh, that was the thing that I think was the connective tissue with all of that was Eric. So much of this feels overwhelming so that when you say everything, it starts to feel like, well, it's inescapable and it's controlling what kind of possible futures are available to us. And that was uh, something that I was hoping to clear up in the second half of the book. But if, if people are, uh, again, just dying before they get there, uh, then we, we need to kind of mitigate that a little bit. And so I think it's, there's a helpful balance in keeping the nihilism at bay. Uh, and right now there's good reason to be nihilistic. And I totally admit that. And sometimes I can find myself being pulled into that myself when I'm on the internet for too long, for instance, or I'm reading too much news for no reason. Um, and so I think that what we want to do is kind of strike that balance between let's be realistic about these shaping influences, but let's also keep things uh, grounded in this sense of, yeah, 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 but what are we going to do today? What's going on today? And I, and I, and I hope that the, the balance finds itself in the book. So what do you say to people that criticize, you know, that you're focusing too much on, you know, the problems out there and it's somebody else's fault and, you know, they're espousing maybe it should be more about personal responsibility you know, that's a favorite term of some groups. Um, what, what do you say to those folks? Yeah, well, I, I would say, well, you're not wrong. Uh, and, you know, there have been worse criticisms of me, so I'm happy to take that one, honestly. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's an old adage, and I usually try to make this joke even with people that I'm seeing at work. And it's, you know, sometimes people come into therapy, and when I start asking questions about their families, they oftentimes people will get a little bit, uh, defensive. No, they're not mean to me, but they're just or guarded or a little bit on edge. Like I'm trying to find something. And I usually have to tell them, Hey, the goal of this is not to just have me lay you on the couch and tell you your dad never loved you. And then we just kind of go from there. It's just to have us be honest about what happened to you and to tell the truth. Uh, and so for me, what I find is that when we do that, when we admit and acknowledge that there are very real things that happen to all of us because people are complicated, the world is complicated, our parents are complicated, their parents were complicated, things are challenging. And sometimes things were really great and sometimes they weren't. And so I think if we can have better insights into what leads us down certain paths that we find to be destructive personally, I think we do that by understanding, well, gosh, like how do we learn that in the first place? How do we learn that response? How do we learn this idea? How do we learn that this sense was normal or this thing was not normal or this kind of way of being a person was always bad or always good? Because I want people to increase their ability to have personal control over what they do next. And so when we tell people their only option is to be personally responsible for public health decisions in a global pandemic <laughs> or, uh, for instance, or um, that they're personally responsible for the degradation of democracy or they're personally responsible for figuring out the geopolitical world that shapes the Ukraine-Russian conflict or they're personally responsible for parsing out every kernel from the news and deciding what's true and what isn't true or what's good and what's not good. It feels a lot like when a middle schooler comes and sits in my office because his or her parents are getting a divorce. And that, that middle schooler says to me, I feel responsible for the reason that my parents are splitting up. Wow. And my first thing to do is to tell him or her, 
yeah, you know, when your brother was born, you did kind of let yourself go. So I think you have a point. <laughs> and then I just sit there for a while, Brian, and then they start smiling. And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's this therapy term we use for this kind of experience. And, you know, forgive my language here, but it's kind of wonky. And it's like, yeah, it's bullshit. Um, but, <laughs> it's like, but other people pronounce it parentification. And so when I hear people talk about personal responsibility for situations that are out of our control and that we don't actually have responsibility to fix, politicians love saying these things. Yeah, it's like we yeah. elected them, for instance, to fix certain parts of our democracy. And all they do is keep giving me the job. <laughs> and so I, you know, in my state here in Tennessee, uh, my governor, uh, who was elected by uh, other people in my state, uh, I'll <laughs> just leave it at that. Uh, he kept telling me during the pandemic that I was the best person to decide what to do with my son. And I said, well, you have a public health spokesperson and a whole public health uh, department here in our state. And you're telling me, Eric, who's a psychotherapist and well-meaning, I try to read the New York Times every day religiously, um, <laughs> that I'm, I'm the best person to decide what my son should do for elementary school, like right now during a global pandemic. And so this is what I would say is that this idea of parentification is really helpful for us hmm. because what parentification means, it's when kids are made to be uh, responsible for their parents' well-being or they're made to perform developmentally inappropriate tasks in a family because there's been upheaval, stress, or family disconnection, or divorce, or sickness, or death. And so a kid kind of fills that leadership vacuum and starts performing tasks for everybody else. Like they wake mom and dad up and help them get to work, or they get an, a part-time job and pitch in around the house and pay for the electric bill, or they you know perform mightily at school and take on tons of responsibility and get this sense that like I'm doing all this so that my mom and dad will feel safe and happy and I don't make things harder for them because life is already really hard. And so um, our work as therapists is to interrupt that from happening because kids are bad at being adults because they should be their kids. And it's developmentally harmful for them long-term if they do enough of this work. And then when you're asking me like societally, what we're talking about here, when humans individually are made to be responsible for saving democracy all by themselves on the internet most of the time, like it will destroy us. And so for me, like that's what, when I say everything, I want people to understand this is not your job to do and trying to do it will in fact kill you. Just like trying to have a middle schooler save his mom and dad's divorce will kill him. Uh, and so I think for us, it's like, if we can release that kind of personal responsibility, and actually control what we are responsible for, which is the way that we feel and what we're currently doing with our actual hands and relationships, I think we find much more uh, control, impact, change, if that makes sense. I think, I think that's valuable advice for us all, for sure. Um, so one of the things, you know, you, as you said, you deal with youth a lot. And one of the things you point out in the book is that um, – you say the difficulty in receiving teenagers, sometimes gruff witness, I mean, knowing that, you know, they're just formulating their ability to express themselves. Um, the difficulty in receiving teenagers, sometimes gruff witness arises whenever we adults confuse the medium for the message and the tone for the content. Um, I, th I think that that's a very valuable perspective. How do we adults stop doing that? Yeah. And 
you know, and, and it's, it, it's really easy to get kind of drawn into these sorts of things. We're like, oh, Gen Z, I can't believe you're doing that. Or all oh, these dumb millennials or all these dumb boomers. And we start talking about humans as if they're, you know, again, demographic survey participants in some sort of Nielsen graph. And for me, I just don't, I don't find that very interesting at all because everyone is their own thing. Um, so when teenagers are talking to me and they're expressing these really complicated or difficult or hard to hear things, I'm not their mom and dad or school teacher or principal. I'm the person that's charged with just paying attention and trying to be helpful. And so for me, I don't get emotionally dysregulated when they tell me hard things or they tell it to me in a way that's confusing or difficult to understand. I just ask more questions because uh, that's my job. And so when I would say that for other adults, it's recognizing that like one of the hardest things to do is like when we have our own children and I have a son who is seven and it's when our own children are expressing complicated, difficult to understand, disrespectful, angry, or confusing messages to us that it's easy for us to become immediately emotionally dysregulated and to respond either by being feeling that sense of helplessness and wanting to withdraw and feeling overwhelmed and almost like we're drowning and we just give our kid more screen time, I guess. That's always the answer, right? Or we become hyper-controlling. We try to get control over the situation by, you know, again, living inside of our kid's head, always being behind them, always micromanaging, helicoptering. Or I had a, a school counselor friend of mine who called it lawnmower parenting, where you just get out in front of the kid and you just mow it down so that they can just walk freely. And for us, we're doing that because we are afraid. We are feeling the sense of scarcity or out of controlness or like fundamental not okayness. And then what we're doing is asking our kids to stabilize us, to be okay, so that we know that the future is secure or so that we know that things will be okay or that we know we're leaving the world in good hands or that we know that we, won't, we haven't screwed them up, frankly. And so when I see that kind of generational complaint happening in famous publications in our country, where they're like, all millennials do this, all boomers do that, what we're seeing is just people who are not having productive family conversations. And what they're asking for each other is something confusing. And so when I see, uh, quote unquote, boomers uh, talking down to millennials or Gen Zers, I hear that kind of undercurrent of, why can't you just be okay? Like, why can't you just tell me that I did a good job raising you? Why can't you just tell me that uh, I didn't screw the world up beyond repair? Why can't you uh, just tell me that um, everything's going to be fine and it's going it, to, and I'm going to be able to retire and not have to think about it, these things? Why are you making such a mess of all of this? And so I think for us, it's recognizing like anytime we want to silence voices of young people who don't like what's happening, it's because we have this like reflexive defensiveness that we've screwed something up and that we've done something wrong. And when we refuse to listen to them, it's doing the same thing that parents do when they're getting a divorce and they need their kids to be okay so that they can feel better about getting a divorce. And so it's like, hey, can you not cry about that? I mean, I know it's really sad and devastating that you're studying for calculus uh, in a mask uh, while the polar ice caps are melting. And I don't have any good solutions for any of that. And you're totally responsible for figuring out and like, I guess, getting into Harvard and being a pro soccer player and a neurosurgeon. Um, but can you just like not be anxious? That'd be great. Cause I feel bad if you were, that's, that's it. Wow. And so for us as, as adults, it's when we hear teenagers in pain, not immediately responding defensively because we've broken something, but just hanging in there with them and just sharing in the, the load of saying, yeah, and it is hard to be a human right now. Do you have any other ideas? Hmm. Wow. 
That's a lot. <laughs> and, you know, I think we've all perceived that things have gotten tougher for kids, you know, over the last couple of years, too. I mean, we've heard, at least I've heard, bits and pieces about, you know, youth mental health crisis and why that is particularly bad right now. What, I mean, is it the pandemic? Is it just everything, as you said, you know, cumulatively? You know, I, this is this is tricky to, to untangle, first of all, especially for one therapist and one podcaster to we can solve it right now, Brian, we can do it. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to be parentified by by this situation and say, like, well, let me take total responsibility for solving this problem for everybody. But I, I do. But I do think that it's a confluence of factors. And if we say, oh, well, you know, everyone's just getting diagnosed with ADHD because they're watching TikTok videos where other teenagers are diagnosing them with ADHD if they like go to the bathroom seven times a day, which is, is happening. People on TikTok are telling people they have mental health diagnoses. Please stop doing that. Uh, so that's the first that's the first thing. It's like, don't get information from Dr. Google or TikTok or Facebook about what kind of mental health experience you're having individually. So first of all, A. But secondly, uh, I do think that if we're, we're talking about, okay, uh, co- competition has ramped up in schools and sports. Uh, family, uh, families have never worked more and parented more than they're doing that right now. So if we look at time use surveys, what we find is that women in America have never parented more directly in terms of active parenting, engaged, talking to their child, spending time with their child than in any time in history as Americans. So millennial parents, for the most part of these people, they're parenting more actively than any generation previously. And they're also working more than any generation in history. Being a two-income family is mandatory now, for the most part, whereas it didn't used to be. So this idea somehow, again, that we should be okay because, again, we have like an iPhone <laughs> and, uh, you know, and bad health care. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, think about it. We, we don't have childcare available for cheap or, or even if it, even if you can pay out of pocket, it's not accessible. It's full. They have closed down. It's difficult. Uh, there's this expectation now that when you do work from home, if you do work from home, you've got to move your mouse so many times per second to let the employer know that you're working. You have to sign contracts that tell you your kids are not going to be in the background of zoom meetings, or they're not going to be actively parenting while also trying to email people that uh, our kids go to school and they're immediately kind of trained to answer questions on a standardized test. Uh, or the, again, their, their sports teams are quickly turning into travel teams that we pay three, four or $5,000 for. And then immediately they're being asked like, Oh, do you, should you be better at this? You should be better at this. And we're doing all of this in a time where it was really scary to be a person and kids were not sure what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to spend time with friends, how they were supposed to go to school, how they were not supposed to go to school. Um, and then we're thinking, well, gosh, it, teenagers seem to be doing badly. And it's like, well, yeah, they should be. All of us are. And just because they're kids doesn't mean somehow that they're resilient. That's the, that's the problem we're having right now is that when our kids are doing bad, they're just giving us feedback about how we're all doing. Like we're all doing badly. And so as Americans, when we can stop judging that in the kids and panicking about it, and just spending time asking more questions about, well, gosh, like, what are we doing? What do these healthcare arrangements that turn pediatricians into mental health workers? Um, or what do these school arrangements produce in our kids and in all of us? Um, and I think that's what I want to have happen is for us to stay curious when we're seeing these really difficult problems happen. Because when we panic 
or we become really binary in our thinking and responses to them, it really truncates our creativity and our abilities to collaborate. So given all these issues, uh, <laughs> is there anything that gives you hope and that you can share with, with folks? Yeah. Uh, you know, that, I mean, we're currently that we're still alive if we're listening to this. Uh, I mean, you know, that we have the ability to ask these kinds of questions. And I, and I will tell people every time that when folks come into my office and they talk to me about where they've been and what they've been through, and then they'll say to me, and it, sometimes it's, it's very painful. And then they'll say, I don't want that to happen to my kids, or I don't want to keep doing this. And that's almost like this, this experience is baked into them. Hmm. That it's, it's inexplicable. Like they just have this sense that I would like to do better for the world and those coming after it than what I got. Even if they can't do it, even if they're struggling or they're impeded by lots of different factors or they become overwhelmed in the moment and withdraw or disconnect or they get sick or lots of things prevent that from actually happening. There have been so few times, Brian, where someone has come through traumatic experiences in childhood or early adulthood. And now they're sitting with me talking about it, that they don't say, I'm not doing that to someone else. I would like this to be different for my kids or my neighbors or the weird dog breeds that I take to the farmer's market on Saturday. <laughs> and for me, like that is the thing that keeps me afloat. It isn't that those people immediately change the world and become viral internet sensations or start nonprofits or hashtag, uh, you know, change the world. It's that in very small, mundane cellular ways, they have this connection to the, uh, an experience that seems possible for them hmm. to do something more helpful, more generous, more life-giving than what they received. Hmm. And for me, that is the gift. It's just choosing to believe that if we can like get into the pain and actually just sit with it and bear witness to it and talk about it, rather than immediately trying to funnel it into some sort of political action campaign or, you know, internet thing, or, you know, protest movement. Again, all of these things are great, but I want people to just slow down and just bear witness to it for a second, because sometimes I think we can find this unifying force underneath all of that that says all of us are complicated people shaped by things that were profoundly unfair and confusing oftentimes, and that all of us still had this sense that we'd like things to be different and better for other people, ourselves included. And for me, like, that is the thing that gets me up in the morning. So one person at a time, basically. It's a grassroots kind of thing, right? Well, I mean, for me, that, that's all I can actually do. Because anytime I want to start doing more than that, uh, again, I feel like a middle school responsible for my parents' divorce. Uh, and so I, I hear people say that phrase, and immediately there's part of me that wants to recoil from that and think, like, oh, man, that sounds like every moderate campaign where it's like, hey, we're going to do this campaign one person at a time. And you think, okay, this is not going to work. Nothing will work. It's all hopeless. <laughs> but I think for me, one of the things that is helpful about that, it's like, yeah, because that's all I am one person responsible for. Mm -hmm. And so when I have personal responsibility to have personal relationships with other people, where I listen to them and in relationship with them and spend time with them and ask hard questions about what's going on with other people when they are in pain, so when I go to my local school board meeting uh, with like a hazmat suit on at this point uh, and like some sort of riot shield and uh, listen to people just like with spittle uh, on the microphone yelling about, you know, 
critical race theory in schools uh, while their kids are like in the back of the meeting on an iPad accessing God knows what on the internet. Uh, one of the things that I find myself wondering is like, well, gosh, like what is this person experienced in the world? Like who has taught them that this is the thing and look at how passionately they're going after what they think would be helpful. And I really, really, and that again, sounds like some sort of terrible therapy take, right? Like therapists are always doing that sort of dumb thing. Uh, and, and Rebecca Solnit wrote this great thing uh, right after Joe Biden's election, right before the, the insurrection on January 6th, where she said, stop meeting Nazis halfway. <laughs> and I loved it. I was like, yes, absolutely. And in that, she, she had this comment about uh, this dig about therapists being like, everyone's feelings are valid. She's like, not Nazis' feelings. Nazis' feelings are not valid. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm on board, Solnit. I get it. I get it. Therapists get a bad rap. I totally, I'm on, I get it. But I, I, but I do think that there is this thing that's more interesting where we do take it one person at a time, not because we don't ask more than one person to change, but because we take it one person at a time to ask the questions, what could be more interesting that this person is doing? Like, how could we redirect that energy? Because they're spending a lot of it doing something they think is really meaningful and hard. Like they're showing up at school board meetings, yelling, making a fool of themselves. That's the degree to which they are willing to go to keep their kids safe. And I dig that. And I just want to tell them, uh, yeah, what if, like, I get it. I'm upset too. The world seems out of control. What if we didn't do it this way? But again, like that's, it's hard when people are in that emotionally reactive state, like we've got to calm them down. We've got to calm all of ourselves down Mm -hmm. so that then we can collaborate or do something more interesting first. Um, And so for me, yeah, that's what I want people to do. When we see people in pain, it's just recognize it in ourselves. When we see teenagers in pain, recognize it in ourselves so that then we can have this kind of connective moment of like, yeah, the world does seem crazy and out of control. That's how that person's dealing with it. This is how I'm dealing with it. Hmm. What can we do together that's more interesting? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I know you're in the midst of a book launch, uh, but is there anything in the future that you can talk about, um, whether it's more books or other projects or speaking tour or what? what's the future looking like for you? You know, and that's I appreciate you asking. Um, uh, for me, I, I'm kind of like a one trick pony. So uh, once the people are like, Eric, you got to pivot into the next thing. Uh, and that's when I try to tell people, like, I think that's just that internalized capitalism telling us we should be more productive. <laughs> um, so that's how I get around it. But uh, I, I am uh, putting together a, a few dates um, in the coming six to eight months where I'm going to go places and talk to people about these things, um, because I think that that's the best way to get at the themes of the book I hear are you. to have like or to, to put flesh and blood on some of these ideas and just spend mm-hmm. time with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's, that's the goal right now. We're looking at a few locations, maybe in Texas, um, West coast and uh, the Midwest and Northeast. So maybe doing some like, like a few events at each part of uh, the country and just trying to pull people together and have interesting conversations. So, um, and I've been telling folks that if they are interested in that sort of thing with me, um, they can reach out to me on my site. There's a contact thing there, um, just ericminton.me. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk with anybody about that sort of thing because I think that's the most fun. Yeah, I think it's the most important too right now. You know, I mean, to get the message out and help people learn, you know, to deal with, as you said, this very challenging world that we live in these days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I do find too, if uh, I can be less of a little box or hashtag or profile picture and more of a human, uh, even if they hate the book, which I, that's fine. Um, <laughs> that at least they'll see, they have to, they have to do it in person. Uh, and so I like it when people hate things in person. 
<laughs> so don't forget, everyone, the name of the book is It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. And you can learn more about Eric and the book at ericminton.me. So, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your work and sharing it with us. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here.